Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I am live at the 2022 Theology Beer Camp, and my friend Tim Whitaker and I talk with Adam Clark. Adam is an associate professor of theology at Xavier University. You can get connected with Adam and Tim and their work in the links in the episode description. If you would like to listen and watch to more presentations from the 2022 Theology Beer Camp, you can go to experiencinggod.net to sign up and get the videos of all the keynotes. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Well, thank you all for for joining. Uh, My name is Mason. We are joined by Adam Clark, who will be chatting with us about black liberation theology, God, and all the good things in the world. Uh, And then this is my friend Tim here uh, as well, and he'll ask a few questions. And then maybe at some point, you all, uh, if we have enough time, we'll open it up for you all to ask any questions, uh, if that works for you too. So, great. Wonderful. Well, we're really excited to have this conversation Let's introduce you for a second, and then you can say a little bit more about yourself if you want to. Uh, but Adam Clark uh, is a professor at Xavier University, uh, and he teaches lots of different things, but uh, also does a lot of work with the black liberation theology world. But Adam, do you have any more that you want to say about yourself? Any cool, fun facts uh, that, you, that everybody <laughs> needs to know about you? Well, what you preface is cool, fun. That, that's a... <laughs> Well, I'm currently, I guess a cool fun fact is probably I am launching a podcast, right, that I actually have the, all the, a lot of audio, and most of it is about interviewing um, James Cone's colleagues, at least the first series, so Union Theological Faculty, and also his editor at Orbis Press, um, and, and a few people that work with him, and that was, you know, I did that about a year ago. And kind of sat on the audio because I, I wanted to get as good as New Evangelicals and others in terms of that. So, so, but I have the actual material and I'm working on, you know, developing the website. So that's probably, for this particular audience, that's probably the most, one of the most, um, that's a cool fun fact. I also work on the Black Theology Papers Project, which is housed at Columbia University. Um, and what that does is take some of the papers that were, delivered at the American Academy of Religion, which is the national conference, and it puts them on display for people who are interested professionally in black theology. That's exciting. I can't wait for a Black Liberation Theology podcast that's sponsored by me MeUndies and HelloFresh. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so since this whole, uh, this whole gathering here is all about experience of God, uh, I think a lot of times when we have these conversations, we automatically assume uh, what everyone believes about God. Um, but as we probably all in this room uh, can figure out pretty quickly, we don't all agree on who God is or what God is. 
so can you talk a little bit about, like, when, when we have this conversation about God today, what are you talking, like, how do you understand God? I think that's a really important way to, to preface this to start this conversation. Wow, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, you always try to distinguish, distinguish between personal and communal when people ask that question, what do I understand? I like to start with the communal because most people are more interested in that from a black theological perspective. First of all, God, there's a plurality of entry points into the experience of God, right? If you talk about traditionally from the uh, black experience, God is a suffering God, right? A crucified God who enters into history and joins with the poor and hurting people, right? So, and I'm talking about Christian experience of God. Let me even be more specific with that, you know, because actually if you talk about black religion, it's more of a multi-faith experience where you have traditional African culture, you have Islam and Christianity kind of molding together this multi-faith experience. Um, but if you talk about black Christian experience, it's really very, um, and probably I would even say more 20th century, more so than 17th to 19th century, because I would argue for that, the Hebrew Testament was more dominant than the Christian Testament, meaning that Moses was a bigger figure than Jesus. You look at spirituals and some of the hymns, it's like, go down Moses. Harriet Tubman was the Moses of, of, of our people. So Moses as a liberator, because Moses liberated his people, let my people go, was much more, and also, I mean, it, it makes common sense. If you see an enslaved Hebrew people in Egypt, and you're enslaved in America, you're going to see an you know, analogous relationship. So that, for most of Black American history, was much more uh, resident. I see a Christological piece came probably late 19th or early 20th century, where you have this idea of kind of a suffering God and Jesus of the cross that became more dominant figure. And you like even see that um, really picked up by someone like Dolores Williams and the Christology that then gets adopted later on. Obviously, we're really moving a lot farther uh, down history, but you even see that really get then picked up by women as theologians of integrating not only what you're talking about with the Hebrew Bible, but also uh, integrating that with a, a Christology and really thinking about Jesus as a liberator. Yeah, yeah. well, her, her, Dolores in particular does something different. Like hers is more of a critique of atonement theory um, and Christology because she believes that the traditional motifs of sacrifice and blood redemption is not just wrong, but it's dangerous for black women, right? Uh, so she, she tries to make Jesus meaningful by talking about the ministerial vision of Jesus, the vision of healing, of wholeness, of health. And she says that, because what happens is if you look at uh, Christology, what's significant is your point of departure, right? And this is what Christians have never fully agreed upon. It's like, uh, if you talk about the privileged access point to the Jesus narrative, do you start with the birth stories, the incarnation? Do you start with 
the teaching ministry? Do you start with the passion and death, right? And depending on where you see the salvific moment, is the salvific moment happen at the incarnation where you have the cosmic Christ, like you have Richard Rohr who talks about this type of union between energy and material that comes in the personality of Jesus, that's a salvific moment, and he rereads the gospel through that? Or do you talk about this teaching ministry of the kingdom of God, right? Like a Borg or a Crossan or a McLaren and that kind of thing that talks about, no, the whole access comes on the teaching of God. That's what he was doing. And that's the access point which we should reread everything in the gospel. Or more traditional ideas of atonement theory where the death and resurrection, the language of sacrifice gets made into this kind of sacrificial suffering or the penal substitution, as, to, as, as Tripp talked about last, last night, is that what's read back in? So, the, so Christians have different entry points into that story, and they reread the rest of the narrative based on that entry point. Where do you put yourself within those different oh, camps? God, why are you going to ask me that question? I'm teaching a course right now on Jesus and power, and... It's really talking about the revolutionary Christ. And what's central to the revolutionary Christ is the kingdom of God. And we're looking at ways of talking about the kingdom of God because, and I think it's more attractive to especially undergraduate students and maybe people who are not necessarily churchy people, because it talks about making the conditions on earth as they are in heaven. Right, like the, the, the Lord's Prayer for Catholics is the Our Father, where it talks about as it is on earth, as it, should, as, it, as it heaven, it should be on earth. So trying to make the conditions on earth as they are in heaven, and that's what kind of this kingdom of God is. And I think that's the most radical, revolutionary way of thinking about it. That's here and not yet. It's here in some of our gatherings, but not yet in its full consummation. So I've been working with that and really trying to talk about what that looks like and how one can reread the gospel stories. We've been looking at different stories, like um, uh, The Demon-Possessed Man. Like a, There's a book uh, called The Politics of Jesus by Aubrey Hendricks. He just came out with another book called Christians Against Christianity. And I work through students with students, this demon-possessed man in Mark, that's usually understood as an exorcism. And he does this kind of craved or reading. He says, well, what's happening here is that the man is not an individual man. It's a representative of a country or a peoplehood. And the demon in here is not an individual demon. It's the Roman Empire because it's legion. I am legion, which is the Roman army. So what is really talking about that the unclean spirit is the Roman legion inside Israel, and you're trying to cast that out. And then he go, goes back and applies that to contemporary. So what does America need to cast out in terms of its unclean spirit? The things, the conditions that poverty happens, the conditions that racism happens. And he goes on, and he uses that as a way of trying to reread it. And that's the revolutionary Christ, right? To think of it from that standpoint. So we've been talking a little bit about how you understand God, and clearly there is this political and social dimension to that. 
I'm guessing then that my next question kind of ties into that. How do you experience God in the world? It's a good question. Well, here's what I don't talk about as publicly, but more personally, I experience God. I also, which I didn't mention, I lead a contemplative group in my faculty on the Ignatian spiritual exercises. They're kind of mindfulness practices. And we look at contemplative literature. And, um, and the people of the, uh, who are participating in these groups have varying degrees of religious commitment. Some people are not religious at all. Some people have deep religious commitment. Some people are Catholic, Muslim. But I find contemplative spirituality a way to bypass some of the stridency of religious language and go underneath the experience to touch something deeper, right? Even sometimes God is a language symbol that blocks access to the spirit for some people. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we need to be careful about even saying that, Mm -hmm. right? So we talk about having kind of deep encounters um, through meditation, like the black church traditionally, they make a joyful noise. It's a very loud, festive. And a lot of that comes from being, not being able to control one's own body. So in the context of church, you can release your body. And that's, that's a certain type of liberating act. Now that people... That reminds me, uh, mm-hmm. there's a great book um, by Ashon Crowley where he, he talks about, it, it's called uh, Black Pentecostal Breath. And he talks about the whooping in the black church tradition as a protest against the suffocation that would happen during lynchings. Um, and so, like, I, I think there's something really powerful about some of those practices, even within the black church tradition, as, um, as not even, like, they, they really are symbolic of this, like, liberation that um, they're hoping to experience. Absolutely. He, he puts his finger on it. Uh, that hasn't been reflected in the literature as much, like the music and bodily movement. And I think the scholars, there's a bias against talking about art in academic modes of writing, right? But um, I think he's got his finger on it. I mean, the musical tradition, the, uh, the aesthetic, the feel, the sensuality of the church um, is probably more dominant a lot of times than even um, the prose or the doctrine and everything. But in terms of contemplation, it's more through silence and more through inner access. And I think that that is not just the black church, I think the entire Protestant church um, I think since the Reformation, the, the Catholics have been more of a custodian of it because they have a monastic life and that kind of thing. So you have a Thomas Merton, you have other, other folks who have kept that. Um, but I think it needs to be reintroduced in creative ways into um, the broader Christian context because most people are going to Buddhism or Asian religions to get that form of meditative freedom or balance, but you can access that from within your own traditions. You know, you don't necessarily have to. I'm not saying that anything's wrong with going to Buddhism or yoga, but what I'm saying is that there's a Christian tradition of the same things that you should at least be aware of, that you could cross-fertilize with any other type of traditions. And the Ignatian tradition is one of the traditions that has an active way of, of trying to access the spiritual dimension 
in ways that are, that are accompanied by mindfulness practices. And I find for my context that works best. I'm just listening and observing and thinking about how in my faith tradition that was, I grew up very reformed, very, you know, um, just kind of taught like this is the true gospel. This is, the Bible is clear. And I didn't, I mean, I, I thought, it just, I'm reflecting upon this, but it's amazing how, how I grew up. I just assumed like, oh yeah, this is what Christianity is. Anything outside of this is not Christian. Um, and, there, and really there's nothing outside of this way of thinking about the Bible and salvation. And as, you know, we've talked before on, on different mediums, and every time you talk and you talk about just kind of the pluralities of way, ways of experiencing and entering into the, the Christian identity and story, it just kind of, it's a reminder that it blows all my categories of what I was taught is like the only way to be Christian. I was wondering, could you maybe expand on that a little bit? Because I think that I'm really intrigued, and it also makes a lot of sense when you say it that way. But then there are times where there's still, like, some remnant of that previous voice of, like, well, I mean, the Bible is clear. Like, just, <laughs> just read it, you know? And I'm, I, I think maybe to, to kind of hone in on, on the point, can you maybe talk about how theology is not just theology? Meaning I was taught, oh, we're just doing theology. But really, my theo- theo- theological tradition does have a culture and a way of viewing the world even though it was taught as this is, this is just objective truth. And if you reject it, you're just outside of the bounds of historic orthodox, air quotes being used for those who can't see, Christianity. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I'll separate it into two questions. Um, one, it's important for especially evangelicals to know, is that there's never been a Christian ecumenical council that had a declarative reading about what salvation is, right? Christians have never agreed. Even in the Bible, you'll have different salvation stories. For example, there's a difference between atonement, right, um, as a metaphor for, those are like juridical, let me say it this way. When people talk about that Jesus died for your sins, right, that's one way of understanding Christian salvation that's different than being in Christ. The Pauline metaphor, which is a salvific metaphor. That's different than the kingdom of God, which is a Jesus metaphor that comes from the Hebrew. So what I'm saying is that there are so many metaphors. The fact that evangelicals have fixated on one and made that a universal is a complete misreading of the Bible and biblical history. Right? And they impose that and think there's nothing outside of that. And I'm saying there are a plurality of metaphors of, of, of that. For example, even for a contemplative world, after Jesus, it, Luke, gets baptized, he goes out into the desert and spends time in the wilderness trying to get himself together, right? In silence, does no teaching just sits there and kind of like communes. That's a metaphor, right? Salvation is about union with God, right? Or wholeness. And there are so many, there's such a plurality of ways to talk about that or fellowship with God. To really narrow it down to one is to 
reduce the richness and vibrancy of the entire Christian message. I'm wondering if you could um, maybe kind of changing lanes a little bit here and kind of going back to uh, black liberation theology in particular. You mentioned that with James Cone, who is really seen as the father of, of that way of thinking about things, um, that he uses the term white and black to describe different like states of being under empire or over empire. Can you expand on that a little bit? And, and Because I think a lot of people might hear in our cultural narratives, you know, if you mention whiteness or, or black, you're being racist or something like that. Can you kind of unpack maybe a different way of looking at that? Yeah. It, well, first of all, it's important to say that there's no scientific thing as race, right? It's not, it's all, it's all a social construct, meaning that, let's go back to pre-racial life. There's always been different hues of people. When we say race, we're talking about giving meaning to certain forms of human differences. Like, people have different earlobes, but we don't have meanings for that, right? <laughs> right? There are a lot of differences that human beings have, but the fact that physical or color differences have so much moral meaning, meaning that if I see someone who's black or dark, I think they're more inclined to criminality, I think they're less intelligent, and I think they're uh, less beautiful, right? Like in terms of that. That's a, that, that's a certain type of signification onto it, more giving meaning to that. Not just observing that, but giving meaning to that. And it's very arbitrary. And it's something that most of human history has not had. Like race is just like the last 500 years of human history. Before that, the vocabulary of differences was probably religion. Like you can, if the, the way ancient cultures would talk about insiders and outsiders was through language and religion. If you worship the same God and learn my language, then you could be part of my group. Race is so distinctive because it's something you can't change. You can't learn that differently, right? You're not going to go to another god or you're not going to... So that's why it has so much permanent. It was ordained by science. So just that as a background, right? Just to say that this is not something that I'm saying is an essence, but it's more of a metaphor to, talk, to flip the associations of blackness and whiteness and invert them just the way Jesus inverted the idea of the last should be first and the first should be last. So it's a, it's a way of trying to translate that into our contemporary situation to talk about the gospel as dangerous and unsettling in the way it was in the time of Jesus. So you mentioned just a bit ago about the social constructedness of race, and you specifically said that it's roughly around 500 years ago that we see this invention of race. At least from my perspective, there, need, there needed to be a theological system that was in place in order for race to be constructed. There's a certain way to think about sin. There's a certain way to think about salvation that then justifies the invention of race. I'm curious if you have any thoughts around how a how someone would need to think about God in order to create the construct of race. It seems like if, if there's all these other ways to think about humanity, the world, um, sin, all of that, um, that then justifies race, then there must also be a way to think about God that also justifies the invention of race. Yeah, like it goes back to a certain, the mechanisms of otherness. So 
For example, you start out with Christianity in its early stages. The earliest people we refer to, well, first of all, they didn't, they didn't see themselves as distinct from Jews, right? It was a, it was a revival movement with inside Judaism. And when it broke outside, that's why the first, like throughout the Bible, you have, do you have to be circumcised to be Christian? Like most of the people who were disciples of Jesus could not imagine you understanding Jesus without understanding the laws of Moses, right? Like, you don't know the laws of Moses? You're not circumcised? Like, what, what's going on here, right? Like, how can you be a Christian? How can you be part of the fold? So the earliest debates, and you know, I don't get into all, like we, we see Paul meeting James and Peter and all this, they're trying to work this out after the death of Jesus. They're saying like, okay, who can become in this? When Paul opened it up to the Gentiles and it eventually becomes a Gentile religion, it de-Judaizes the Christian gospel where Jews become the religious other. And what people like Will Jennings and J. Cameron Carter, they, they, they talk about the kind of invention of race by talking about that since Jews became the religious other, that gets mapped on to black bodies as being the racial other, mm-hmm. right? Because Christianity goes from being this religion with implications about a universal God to Europe's tribal deity. And others were outside of that who had to come in as subordinate to it. And that's where you get paganism, um, heathenism, all those other types of labels to identify. So there's an intrinsic othering mechanism within Christianity that happens way before you have these negative encounters between Europe and African people that gets mapped on to black bodies and then gets settled over time. It doesn't happen all at once. It takes hundreds of years for this to be a settled constellation of imagery because if you look at the literature within Greek philosophy or Homer, they used to say the, the Ethiopians are gods. The Egyptians are gods, right? They had a whole different type of, like, and even the early Christian pe- folks, Augustine, Tertullian, Origen, they were African people, right? So you, you didn't always have this. It's something that historically emerged out of many different mechanisms, but now it has a certain types of fixicity, fixis, I should say, because of all the type of tragedies, you know, slavery, colonialism, that came under that, but it was something that evolved over a long period of time. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry, but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. 
United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. In, um, I believe it's James Cohn's book, uh, Black Theology and Black Power, he talks about violence, and he talks about how you know, the state uses violence um, for uh, oppression, and then whenever there's a rebellion against that, that might include some form of violence, it's then vilified as, you know, law and order, something like that. I'm wondering, can you um, maybe expand on that a little bit? Because we talked about this before, and it really was like, it was very eye-opening for me, because just, again, my cultural context, how I grew up, right, was always taught, well, you know, uh, we don't want any kind of violence, and it, once that happens, it therefore delegitimizes the whole movement. But James Cohn and how he explains, you know, that I thought was just eye-opening. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, what he did, uh, this is similar to Malcolm, he, he, would, he would critique, he would critique white people for applauding people like King and Gandhi for being more proud of nonviolence than the goal of equality. Right? You're, you're more happy about the method than you are about the actual end. <laughs> right? And he says, you don't say the same thing about George Washington. When George Washington had to use violence to fend off British tyranny, that was fine. Right? And, it, and, it, it, and it's not a universal. It's, it's, it's kind of like, <laughs> in our contemporary context, there's a book out, well, out called The... Um, the cross and the flag, right? And what they say is that, and they're talking about evangelical Christian nationalism, which you've been talking about for a while. And he says that there's this kind of unholy trinity where you want freedom for white man, men, order for everybody else. And when everybody else violates the order, it's violence. So freedom for Christian white men, everybody else gets order. This is how you could have someone like a Donald Trump who will condemn the violence of Black Lives Matter but celebrate the violence of January 6th, right? So it's not about violence in and of itself. It's about who's actually using violence. And that's where the hermeneutic of suspicion because you're not uniform in your condemnation of violence. It's only when people who are marginalized decide to fight back yeah. that the ethic of nonviolence is appealed to. It's not a universal policy. You don't say that when other folks. And that was a critique. Yeah, I think it's important to note, just for, for us to say it, that you know, it, th- even that comparison, which often gets used in those circles very often, right? Someone brings up January 6th, well, the Black Lives Matter protests. But statistically... They were 4% of those protests, which were the largest ever to happen in America, ended up violent compared to one situation where, you know, people stormed our Capitol trying to overthrow and hang the vice president. That's that's important. I'm glad you mentioned that because I didn't mean to, like, make a false equivalency because, yeah, I forget that people think that. (laughs) 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 Yeah, because it wasn't a use. It's more... First of all, the people that actually use violence weren't even Black Lives Matter folks. But when you do have, and it also wasn't against people, it was against property, right? Which is, you know, another significant. 
people targeting property versus people targeting people. But yeah, there's never, there was never a, a um, authorized use of violence within the Black Lives Matter movement where that, but in the public imagination, right, it gets collapsed. Well, I, I think that, and we're good, I know that there's a session later on on Christian nationalism, but that's an important, important piece to, to point out is how effective the propaganda is, that people get stuck in that conversation, right, where they feel like they have to defend one over the other, which already they've lost that argument because now they're equating two very different things from two completely different perspectives that aren't even close to the equivalent. I think another point that's worth pointing out is that property piece. Because again, in my tradition, violence against property was seen as you know the same thing, or at least it was painted as a, in, in a way of being as egregious as violence against people. But one day- Because you, you have property. Right. <laughs> and I, I, I forgot where, one day, I don't know, it just hit me, I'm like, you know, a Starbucks is not a sentient being made in the Imago Dei. So if, if a chair gets thrown through a window, like, you know, I'm not sure if that's really, you know, the same level of um, someone being murdered by the state. But, but it, it is made to feel that way because of the rhetoric that is so effective in these spaces. Well, yeah, you, you, you bring up an excellent point. And you pay much more closer, closer attention to this than I do. But in my head, I go back to South Africa and the ANC when they were fighting against the uh, apartheid system, they would make distinctions. They said, we're gonna use violence, but they would talk about it in terms of, no, we're going to hit the police station or we're gonna hit this cable line over here and that kind of thing. And they would talk about, and really, you know, France Fanon wrote a book called The Wretch of the Earth. And he wouldn't say it's violence. He would say it's counter-violence, meaning that the system itself is institutionalized violence, right? Even Pope, uh, Pope Francis said, thou shall not kill applies to economies that kill, politics that kill, right? So what happens is that if you think about it institutionally, violence is an institutional arrangement, and what you're getting is counterviolence from the people who are on the underside of that institution, right? So it's, it's not that they initiate the violence, they're just reflecting the violence that's already present in their daily lives. This conversation between like, you know, people like white Christian nationalists and then even black Christians, it seems as if they literally worship two different gods. Like they, they think of God in two very, very different ways. Can you talk a little bit about that? Just like the, the two very different understandings because I, I would imagine if you were talking to a white Christian nationalist and talking about God, I would imagine both of you are gonna be thinking about God very differently. Yeah, yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, the way I talked about it earlier is the difference between experience of God and knowledge of God, right? It's hard to say what people experience in the context of worship, like to really pin it down, but knowledge or knowing is socially constructed. And what categories do you have? And when you experience God, what are you bounded to in your understanding? How does it your expansive, capacious self, what is it actually being bound to? And I think when you talk about, you know, those type of different experiences, I think there might be a moment when people who have a profound encounter might be open to new possibilities, but if there's no intellectual alternative, 
you know, people could get frozen into their own tradition and it could just be a momentary opening, right, of possibility, but the actuality is still very conscribed by tradition. So some of the uh, examples I've used earlier were looking at um, Azusa Street, right, which is uh, the kind of Pentecost movement where you have the spirit descend in the context of racial apartheid and people coming together of different races, a multiracial group of a moment in celebration of the Holy Spirit, right? And for a moment, that kind of shaped and shifted people's awareness of the oneness of all things. But then when people went back to their daily lives, right, it didn't stay, it didn't maintain, right? They started to just, their knowledge of that experience started to change. Like it'd be different to see, even over time, how you understand that experience. You might understand it as one thing in the moment, then a day later, you might reinterpret it, then a year later, it's interpreted again and that kind of thing. So I think we have to take seriously the idea of you could have a revelatory experience, but you have to have a community of interpretation to receive that experience, right? And theology is about the community of interpretation. It takes seriously how that revelatory experience is being reinterpreted, how it's being received, and then how it's being transmitted to future generations, right? So I think the, the, we have to have categories that are able to, in metaphors, that are able to take the revelation and put it in more egalitarian and just forms. And some cultures are so restricted or they see those egalitarian and just forms just for their tribe and not for everybody, right? So that's why, you know, it, it, in terms of religious experience, we have to expand it to say the whole of life. If you just quadrant off religious experience alone, I don't think you could ever guarantee that it's going to go in a direction that promotes the good. I think the whole of life has to be involved because as I said before, slaveholders had religious experience, right? They said authentic, but it did it. People who are abusers might have a religious experience. It doesn't necessarily stop the abuse. What we want to do is talk about how humans are formed. What is the formation? What are the processes of formation? How you shape the imaginative experiences and how you shape human behavior and practice. And I think that's, if we, t if we zoom out a bit and look at the religious experience in the context of that, I think that's a more adequate way of, of, of really trying to ensure that religious experience has a direction toward the good. So clearly white Christians and black Christians at times might think about God very differently. But one of the things that was really revelatory for me um, as I've studied theology is especially black liberation theology is that black, all, not all black Christians think about God the same way too. And, you know, I, I think of someone like, uh, like James Cone, who was very influenced by the, the Reformed tradition uh, and thinking about God in that way, you know, God being very sovereign, um, being able to um, possibly intervene in human history. But then you have someone like Monica Coleman, who uh, is very processy and, um, you know, a friend of uh, the Homebrewed podcast. Can you talk a, a little bit about 
And, and I also know that you have some process sensibilities. I mean, you, yours are tingling a little bit too. Can you talk a little bit about that, that sort of like different understanding of God, but yet our, both, you know, Cone and someone like Coleman are still committed to liberation, but they understand God very, very differently. Yeah. Wow. That's a tough question. Uh, <laughs> Cole. Oh, gosh. Well, Coleman is not just process. She's actually, I think she talks about this publicly. She's a practitioner of African religions, too. So she has much more of a multi-faith. And also, she's a woman. I mean, there's, there's a lot of differences there. I, I think, um, and there's similarities and differences. I think she, she breaks from tradition more sharply than he does, mm-hmm. right? And she's, um, there's more improvisation, novelty, and she sees, oh, here, okay, here's how I would say, say, and I hope this is not too academic or um, for people here. Traditional theology makes a distinction between the person and the work of Christ. Okay, follow this. Most of the time, they talk about the person of Christ and then look at the work of Christ. What Monica does, I think, is so genius. She says, the work of Christ predates Jesus. And Jesus, as person, is an expression that comes later, and he continues the work of Christ. Right? Where Cone is much more traditionalist, and his idea of the work of Christ is the pursuit of liberation from Jesus. Coleman has this kind of more cosmic thing going about salvific act. Jesus is one expression of salvific activity. Salvific activity is the pursuit of wholeness. So the pursuit of wholeness is from the birth of creation. And Jesus is one expression. That's why she talks about multiple saviors. So when she talks about saviors, she's talking about people who are healers in whole-making work. And Jesus is just one of multiple expressions of that. So she has this radical plurality and radical understanding that it would be hard to institutionalize because it's so... (laughs) Where Cone is much more focused on a kind of denominational sensibility because of who he's trying to talk to. Yeah, I feel like that then empowers us to live into the name Christian, right? Christian meaning little Christ. Now, we might not be as quite as complete as the person of Jesus was in in that work of uh, the Christ, but we all, uh, you know, people who would say that they're a Christian are a little Christ in that way where we can actually continue on that work. I would say it as Christ is working in us, mm. right? Then I am the Christ. <laughs> I would say Christ may be working in and through us, <laughs> right? Rather than I am that, you know, which you could say metaphorically, but it, it'd be, it, it'd be um, in, a, in a narcissistic country that could be tempted to misinterpretation, <laughs> right? So to be careful with the language, you could say things that, you know, I would say it's working on you. And, and, and so, so, so Coleman's idea is that, yeah, the, the work or the salvific activity is something that um, and I think I'm, 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 I'm saying it right, begins with creation. Mm-hmm. It's inherent in creation. Mm-hmm. 
And Jesus comes in like is a continuity on that, right? And not only Jesus, right? That's why she goes to Octavia, Octavia Butler novels and that kind of thing. No, that's really, um, for me, it's very thought-provoking. I never thought about the work of Christ, the person of Christ, you know, and, and how you can frame that. I think it's just my, maybe a final observation for me, then I know we have to wrap up, but even your last, like, what you just said about maybe it's Christ working through me as opposed to being Adam the Christ, which, by the way, I, I would follow you for the record. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm just, it's interesting because I think that sometimes while maybe it's almost a paradox where language is obviously very important, but sometimes people in their own tradition communicate a similar reality for them in their own language, right? So for me, when you said that last part of, yeah, Christ working through me, I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally get that. But then when Mason was like, we're all Christ, I'm like, you're a heretic, <laughs> and uh, that's wrong. Uh, <laughs> but does that make sense, you know, where it's like, yeah, I, when you frame it like that, I kind of get the vibe, even if maybe there's some differences there, but I, I can easily acknowledge, like, yes, like, I want to represent Christ. I want Christ to work through me. I do want to be a little Christ, and I just think it's very... It's kind of reassuring in some ways that, you know, you can find um, similar ideas, even if the language might be a little bit different based on people's traditions. Yeah, well, sometimes I think it's healthier. Like, we read the Bible as if we're the hero in the story. Maybe we're more like Judas than we are like Christ. Or maybe we're more like Peter. Like, maybe we have our clay feet, and we shouldn't read it from a hero's perspective, but from the perspective of people who were anxious and had anxiety, like, is this guy really who he says he is? Maybe our relationship is more like that and more like, hey, I helped you out so much. No, you didn't. I don't know who you are. Or if we get this job, you know, if someone offers us a lot of money, we'll turn our back on what's most precious and valuable to us. Maybe we're more like that than we are, like the Jesus, the, the heroic Jesus of the story. So I think sometimes to really understand our human fallibility, it may be more healthier to read it from the perspective of, of the majority of people who looked at this improbable story of Jew, not from Jerusalem, but from Galilee, right? From nowhere, from Nazareth, who worked in Galilee, um, under Roman occupation, who goes around saying all these things. He didn't go to the right schools. <laughs> he wasn't like the scribes. Even the Pharisees, who at the time were actually like with the people, like they wanted to preserve the law. They were like, look, if you actually work on the Sabbath, you are violating the laws of our God that Moses said don't do that, right? It wasn't like they were being mean, who wanted to cast lepers out in order to preserve the village. Right? And Jesus sit there embracing lepers. You're going to contaminate all of us, dude, if you do that. Maybe we're more like that than we are like the her heroic hero of the story. Right? And I think that may bring a different sensibility to our Christian understanding if we understand that most of our everyday ordinary consciousness, we do things that actually are more reflective of the people who deny Christ in that day than, the, than Christ himself. Um, I just have one really quick last question. Hopefully it can be quick. Most of, the, most of us in this room are, are white. And one of the things that I've found so, um, so transformative in my own theological journey is reading black 
liberation theology. Can you talk about what black liberation theology can offer um, white people? What, like, what, what, what's the, why is there a need for white people to also be um, engaged in black liberation theology? Yeah, people ask me that. I always say, <laughs> no, I always say, I don't care, right? I don't really care. But I'm trying to care because people ask me that a lot. Well, let me say, black is for really a metaphor for the oppressed. The liberation is really talking about the biblical sensibility from Moses to Jesus. And the Christian identity is formed by Martin Luther King um, primarily. And I think what happens with, with black theology for white people, it unsettles and disturbs and overturn the sense that Christianity is about the status quo. It gives a sense that Christianity is dangerous. And to love and to do justice is a dangerous path, right? The way Jesus talked about it, he talked about there's a narrow way and a broad way. And I invite you to the narrow way but broad is the gate that people who are leading to death, narrow is the gate that leads to life. And I think black theology tries to point to people to go through the narrow gate. That's the invitation to take this path, to overturn the, the idols of this world, of power, prestige, and racial tribalism Right? and to enter into the gate in solidarity with poor and hurting people. And I think that's the challenge. I love it. Certainly, black theology has been so incredibly transformative in my own journey of unsettling my whiteness. And uh, this conversation has certainly been that for me. I hope it's been for all of you as well. Uh, let's give our appreciation to Adam Clark for this conversation. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. If you'd like to connect with Adam and Tim and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Thank you.